0: We are all made for epic. What do I mean by that? Well, epic movies always grip us. And in the back of our minds, we've all have this secret life of Walter Mitty where we imagine ourselves involved in epic, involved in an epic. Struggling to, to get things better, struggling to get things right, um, we all see ourselves, you know, in a bit of a heroic journey, per se. And epics are are almost always, you know, those big, audacious stories that absolutely grip us. Grip us. We talked about gripping us last week. But our imagined reality is what's gripped by epics, and epic stories um, have this this kind of repetitive pattern about them, where in an epic kind of story, the, the lead character in the story, who might be you, as we imagine it might be us, uh, but there's this ordinary world that's going on, and then out of nowhere, there's there's this scary threshold, or there's this Kind of crossing that needs to happen and when we face that it's not only scary but there's going to be tests that appear tests that put friendships and enemies on the line and we've got to sort through it you know in a real and meaningful way like we have never done before and it and on the horizon and somewhere out there is this new tool or this new weapon or this new idea or this new solution that that has to be discovered, and when it is discovered, all of the sudden there's this resurrection or this kind of new feeling or this new confidence that emerges, and then we go back to that threshold. And when we go back to that threshold or that scary crossing, you know, of whatever it was that we were imagining that we go back to that threshold and we use our new tool, we use our new solution, we use our new idea, and all of a sudden that ordinary life is never the same again. And that's the pattern of epic. And epic is what the Bible is all about. And what we're up to here is a little bit different than uh, what we normally do. What we normally do is we simply open the Bible up and we read through a book at a time, and we talk about it, and we talk about its meaning. This time we're looking at the Bible itself, the whole thing, and how to make sense of it all. And hopefully this series will really help you and really engage you. So, that new tool, that new tool that's oftentimes needed in in a heroic character's epic journey, that, that new tool, that new weapon, or that new solution, well, what I find, and what you probably do too, is that oftentimes in the storyline, it was something that wasn't too far from us all along. It happened to be close by, but, but it was somehow out of sight, and it was somehow missing from us. And then, and then, we had somebody come along, and all, all of a sudden, there it was. And it had been there, and it really wasn't that hard to work out. And I would say that is the Bible. It's not far from us it's been around for a long time but yet you got to admit in our culture today it's a bit far away but it is just waiting to be discovered and that's what we're talking about we're trying to get to the bible itself so we'll have some um some quotes from the bible to to take a look at but but that's what we're focusing on is how to actually get to the bible and how to bring that bible near to us And so, we don't have uh, our normal Bible reading, but of course, when it comes to anything Bible-related, it makes sense that we would just pray. And I'm always a fan of praying the way Jesus taught us how to pray, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Lord, we come here to see your epic in Jesus Christ. Amen. Right on. So the fact is, is that every generation has to discover the Bible like it's absolutely brand new. It's unavoidable. It's the way that human beings work. It's the way that the Bible works. Um, even though you might have been taught the Bible all your life, it still needs to be discovered like it's a brand new thing. Um, and in a in a time that we live in where it seems like the Bible's been forgotten, it's, well, very appropriate to see the Bible as something that needs to be discovered. And discover it is our goal. We're going to discover the Bible in the series, and we're going to discover it in a way that I think is going to be really helpful to you. So anyhow... Um, uh, that's our goal is to discover yourself, to immerse yourself in something big, in something truly that is epic of biblical proportions. Even saying the word biblical implies the idea of epic. It's large, it's grand, it's grandiose. It's the mother of all epics. So it the Bible itself it's not made for church. It's not made for synagogue. It's not made for temple. It's not made for mosque. It's not made for a building. It's made for living. It's made for life. It's made for you. It's made for me. And the approaching the Bible, no doubt, can feel like an epic challenge um, in of itself the, the scary threshold that the Bible might bring to us. Maybe we feel like we're terrible readers. Maybe we feel like we just got too much uh, you know, to do. Or maybe, um, well, it just looks like another disappointing endeavor. Maybe it looks like it's impossible for us to, to really do much about. Um, or maybe we're just listening to that little voice that's in all of our ears saying, well, you know what, the Bible's just full of crap anyhow. Why bother? That's what we're trying. That's our threshold. Uh, Every heroic journey has a threshold, and especially when it comes to the Bible. It's what it looks like for all of us. It's not just some of us. It's me, too. All of us fit the category of that same kind of threshold that that looks like the Bible's just not going to be an approachable thing for us. But it is. All kinds of tests will make the journey seem very daunting, in an epic, though, in an epic, there's usually some, you know, kind of friend or old salty mentor, you know, uh, uh, character that adds some bits and pieces that help you get going in the right direction. How about we just consider that's what I'm trying to be? I'm just trying to be that salty old friend that kind of points you in, a, in the, disco- the direction of you making the discovery for yourself. So let me be clear. It is my hope. It is my hope that you find your epic life in the pages of the Bible. And I know that you can find your epic life in the pages of the Bible. Even if you feel like you're just ordinary, you're just a Walter Mitty, you're just, you know, an ordinary person. Perfect. Actually perfect. What I find incredible about the God of the Bible is that in the Bible, we find that the God of the Bible is the God who can make absolutely everything and has made absolutely everything, but at the same time, but at the same time, the God who made everything can and does put everything on hold to make you feel like you're the only thing that matters, to make me feel like I'm the only thing that matters. And that indeed, that indeed, is the way the Bible reads. So that's pretty epic and I don't know about you but that makes me feel pretty good if I think in terms of that kind of epic. If an ordinary redneck cracker like myself can feel like that, well so can you. And so Uh, um, uh, just consider me that salty old friend that's trying to to just give a little bit of guidance so that you yourself can start your epic journey the epic that we call biblical okay so when it comes to the bible and we're going to talk about a lot of mechanics to the bible but things that will help us stay on the path and actually make some really good headway when it comes to the bible number one is the recognition that it is a book that's unlike any other book. Now, the word Bible isn't even a Christian or religious word. It's just the word for book. There's a lot of words in our vocabulary that just kind of come from other languages, and then all of a sudden they sound so unique and different. But the truth is, the truth is, the word Bible just means book. And then we put the word holy on it, and that sometimes makes matters worse because we don't use the word holy very much. And when we do, we probably don't have what the Bible has in mind whenever it uses the word holy. Uh, The word holy, biblically speaking, means to set something apart. To set something apart very special, yeah, but to just set it apart. So when we call it the Holy Bible, it actually just makes perfect sense in the way that God wants it to make sense, and that is, it's a separate book. It's a unique book. It's a, it's, it's a set-aside kind of book. And it's going to be different than any other book. The Holy Bible. So it's pretty, pretty accurate to call it the Holy Bible. It's just that we don't know what it means. That's all it means. So anyhow, this, this book, this book has two parts. Now, once again, old words sometimes are not helpful. The way that most people talk about the, the Bible is in terms of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then you even get people saying, well, I don't like the Old Testament, I, I just like the New Testament. Man, I've heard that, and uh, I'm here to tell you, can't get into that kind of thinking. That is bad thinking. Let's talk about the first part, part one. Let's just call it part one. Part one has 39 different authors, Um and not only does it have 39 different authors, or it has 39 has 39 different pieces of literature. doesn't have that many authors because, first of all, Moses writes five of those books. Jeremiah writes two of those books um, of the 39. But it's written, that part one is written over the course of 1,400 to 2,000 years. That's different. You have to admit that is a different kind of book. That's a separate kind of book than any other book that we've really ever heard of. The first language of part one is really Hebrew, but then later on, somewhere around 200 BC, in the 200s BC, it gets rewritten into Greek. So there's still the Hebrew um, version of part one, but now there's a, a Greek version of part one, and the Greek version, when they rewrote it into Greek, they organized it a little bit different. So, the, so there's really two organizations of the old part, you know, or the part one. I just like calling it part one. Every time I say part one, you can think Old Testament if, if that helps you, but I'm just going to call it part one. And so, so there are two different organization schemes. Um, if you're reading the Hebrew part one or if you're reading the Greek Part one, and one of the reasons why the the part one was translated into Greek is because the simple fact is is that the little nation of Israel was overrun by Greek speakers, and they were the ones who were in control. And eventually, the Hebrews um, said, "Hey, we better um, translate this into Greek because well, so many people speak Greek, and are, you know and our people are speaking more and more Greek, and so it's going to be very useful to translate this into." Greek. So that's fascinating because it seems like um, even then there wasn't a holy language that the Bible had to be written in, that it was actually meant to be put into different languages from the very beginning. Okay, I'm getting away that uh, from, from our, our organizational scheme. So the two ways that the Bible's organized, the way that you're most familiar with the organizational scheme is three parts. There's the history part that goes from Genesis to the Book of Esther. And then there's the poetry part, and the poetry part um, you know, starts with Job, I think. Job or Proverbs. And it includes Job, Proverbs, Psalms. It includes you know, poetic material. And then there's the last part, and, and that's what we call the prophets, so from Isaiah to Malachi, or Isaiah. However you want to say that, it's fine with me. Um, This is the Bible that you're most familiar with, um, and it follows the Greek version, the LXX, or the Septuagint. Then there's the uh, other organizational scheme, the first organizational scheme, which basically organizes the, the part one of the Bible into the law, and the law would be the first five books of the Bible. There's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and then it moves into the um, the prophets section which would include joshua the whole way to malachi and then it ends with what it calls the writing section and the writing section includes that poetry that we were talking about and it also includes the um, the material of first and second chronicles now i say that because um, well, it's just part of the facts of, of the interesting, you know, making uh, of this book, and that's the facts that are out there. And the the um, second organizational scheme, the one that was in Hebrew, seems to be the one that Jesus was, you know, referring to the most because we actually have a quote from Jesus that comes out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 44, where Jesus says, everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is code for writing. And even more technical would be the Torah, the uh, Navim and the Ketavim. If you ever wanted to drop some real heady party talk, you know, into, to make yourself look good, you could say, yeah, the, uh, the Bible, or as Jesus uh, uh, held it and read it and, and talked about it, was uh, organized under the Torah, the Naveem, and the Ketavim. That'll make you sound super smart. Anyhow, just uh, uh, doing a little joshing, but that's the reality of it. Um, then there's part two of the Bible. And part two is what we might call the New Testament, but, but more importantly, um, that part two has 27 different pieces of literature in it and it's organized in what we call, you know, the you know, the gospels. So the first four books are called the gospels, which is a little bit complicated because Luke's gospel we actually call the book of Acts and it's Luke's volume 2. But John's in between Luke and Acts. Anywho, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are kind of put side by side because they, they clearly are using the same material. They're just reordering it so that they can tell the story a little bit differently, but it's still got the same meaning, you know, the, the same storyline. <clears throat> So that's why. And then there's the letter section. So you have, um, uh, I like calling it just, uh, you know, not just the, the letter section, but the, the big talks about Jesus where the apostles, you know, are, are having big talks to, you know, people who are now Christians in different places. They're having big talks about Jesus that are very helpful. And then there's the last book, and that is the book of Revelation. That's the one that everybody gets all kind of crazy about. But that would be how the new you know, part of the Bible, or the part two of the Bible, is basically organized. So you have Genesis, no matter what, you have Genesis as the first book, you have Revelation as the last book, end of story. All right, well I just say that to you because it's good to know things, and it's good to know how things are just basically laid out. But the more important bit about the Bible, and, and how the Bible is to be understood... It's going to seem like I'm lying whenever I say this. The Bible really has one author. <laughs> I know, I know. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Billy, you just got done telling me that there's, you know, all of these different pieces of literature written by many different people over the span of, you know, what what could be upwards to 2,000 years, And now you're trying to tell me that there's one author. And I think most of you know where I'm coming from on this, but it needs to be sorted out um, into a, a proper conversation. And here's what I mean by that. So if you take the people that are in the Bible, the people who are writing the Bible, the people that are in the Bible, they clearly understand how the Bible works when it comes to how it was written. We, today, tend to use a, a term called inspiration. Um, part of the reason why we call it inspiration is because that's the way some of the authors you know, talk about being inspired. Um, inspired, though, needs to be talked about in a, in a clearer way because it wasn't just like, hey, I've got an idea. Um, it's, it's a lot more than that. Here's the way that biblical Inspiration usually works almost always, and it goes like this: God does something big that's experienced by many people. Now, that experience that God you know arranges, and many people see it and experience it, now needs to be understood clearly. And so, what God does is picks a faithful person or faithful people to actually record what was so important about what just happened that everybody experienced and what needs to be communicated so that other people from that point forward will know what was important about what happened. Think to yourself uh, the Red Sea. So imagine, you know, all you know is that God parted the Red Sea, said nothing else. Well, I'm not sure how that helps us. Instead, the storyline moves over to a place called Mount Sinai and then Moses gets involved and then Moses, you know, records, he's the faithful recorder. He's the one who's, who's called to the task. And I do believe that there were probably some others like, you know, could have been Joshua, could have been some others, that, you know, Aaron, you know, that were involved in, in getting the information from God into a faithful rendering in their language, um, that recorded the important events. But here's the key. The key is, is that when God picks a faithful person to record what is important and what should be understood, the author is allowed to use their skills, their literary skills, to shape it all. The key is being faithful to what God has told them is the important uh, things that need to be written down. Okay, so the authors of the Bible would all agree with a guy named Paul who says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed. They know completely that on one hand, God has inspired and taking control of the words that have been written down. On the other hand, God is perfectly content with allowing the skills of that author to be used because Paul is very aware that the skill of writing um, was in each author's hands, that they were allowed to use their skills in writing literature as they thought it was the most appropriate vehicle for holding, you know, the faithful message together. And so what what I'll now say is, which I hope is helpful, is that, you know, there are other books, there are other books, books uh, written by Muhammad, books written by Joseph Smith, where it's pretty clear that they don't like that kind of definition of inspiration and how God, you know, does something big, and then controls the situation and the message by picking faithful people to get it written down, but to write it down with their own skills of writing things down. Because the, you know, those two uh, gentlemen that, that wrote books uh, made it really clear that there was zero human effort in their writing. That all they did was simply dictate. They that, that they 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 were like a secretary who just kept writing each and every word down, and they would make it clear whether it would be Muhammad or whether it would be Joseph Smith or maybe some others. But those are those are two key players, you know here. But they have a whole different idea, and that is that they had zero input in writing it down. They just wrote the message down exactly as God gave it which is also interesting because if that is the way that it works, then that sets up the need for this holy language. So, you know, both of those authors, you know, Muhammad and Joseph Smith, would, would you know, make it clear that those words as given are more holy, better words, than any other language, so which puts the onus on you that if you're really going to get the words, um, you have to know the language, which would mean we'd have to, uh, you know, you have to learn Arabic or you have to, um, you know, know the kind of English that Joseph Smith was was using. So that is really different than the way the Bible works because there really is no holy language. There was always the ability to change the language. Um, The new part of the Bible was written mostly in Greek but was almost immediately translated into many different languages because there was no felt need to to, um, have a holy language per, per se. Okay, so there is the sense, biblically speaking, that there is one author, and and the reason why there's one author is because God himself is controlling the situation and picking the people that are faithfully recording the words that are down, but he's clearly using, he's not not hiding the fact, that he's using and encouraging these human authors to put their human writing skills um, into practice. Okay, so that's one. One author. The next is that there really is one subject. When it comes to the Bible, even though there are 66 different books, there is one subject matter at hand, and it is very easy to understand. The subject matter at hand in the Bible is this. God is offering salvation. It's the salvation that God is offering that eventually reaches the climactic moment in Jesus Christ. Okay? So there is one subject, and it's the subject of God's salvation plan for all of humanity. It's the plan that he's offering to all humanity, and it's the constant, constant conversation that is going on in every single book. It's the backdrop. It's the subject. It's I don't know, however, It's the context. No matter where you are, that's the main thing. So we get a sense of uh, um, this one subject idea from from Jesus uh, in the new part or the part two. Jesus himself, you know, makes it clear that there is a subject, and it's him. Uh, John chapter five verse thirty nine. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that they bear witness about me. Did you catch that? Jesus Jesus is saying that the main subject of the scriptures, and the scriptures to him would be part one of the Bible, But the main subject of the scriptures is him, that they are heading somewhere in a story and have reached somewhere in him. Okay, another uh, passage that reinforces the same thing, Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Once again, it's that same idea that the scriptures are about himself. And what is he about? He is about God's plan of salvation. Once more, we have another one. Now, Luke 24, 44. Jesus said to them, These are my words, that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, so... The way that Jesus reads the first part of the Bible is that there were promises made that need to be fulfilled, and he is the one fulfilling all of the promises. And the main promise, once again, is this promise of salvation that God initiates from the very beginning. But again, it's the whole part one is related to to part two, who is Jesus. Part two is all about Jesus, but Jesus is all about what the first part was all about too. So that's what we mean when we say there's one subject matter. Now let me offer something else out there, and that is there's the bad idea that many, many people, listen, I hear this all the time, that the way they understand part one and part two is that God organized a game plan in part one that failed, and since that didn't work out, he organized another game plan called Plan B, Jesus. And, and you know, so you have two different game plans. No, 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 no. That's not how Jesus saw it. Jesus didn't see himself as the, uh, the new game plan. He saw himself as the old game plan, the game plan that was always at foot, the game plan that was always coming forward because it was promised and he is here to make it happen to fulfill the promise and that is the probably the most important language when it comes to understanding how the Bible works is promise and fulfillment if a promise is made we want to know how it gets filled, fulfilled the very word promise expects fulfillment and so always remember that, that to get the most out of the Bible, you're tracking the promises and looking at how they were fulfilled. And from Jesus' point of view, that is his whole life, his whole mission, his his death on his cross, and his resurrection is all about fulfilling the promises that God has made to humanity, all human beings, not just Israel. He's there to fulfill those promises. So the old part gives us the promises. The new part gives us the fulfillment. So, what the Bible is not. The Bible is not a book of quotes. And I know that might come as a big surprise. It's quotable, I agree with that, it's quotable. But quoting the Bible can sometimes get a little bit risky because, well, it tends to take things out of context. Listen, every word that is in the Bible has the context of a sentence, which is in the context of a chapter or a, a section, a paragraph, um, a chapter, and it has a context of the book itself. And then, to and then here's the, here's the big, big, epic. You know, portion of the Bible is that whatever that word and that sentence and that paragraph in that book is to mean. It also has to mean the same thing in the other sixty-five books. The other sixty-five books have to work around the same thing. You, it, it, you know, so it's this massive control mechanism, um, and it comes as a bit of a surprise. I know for me, I thought the Bible was really just a book of rules or a book of quotes. Uh, one of you know, one of those two, but it's not. It's an epic story that has spanned thousands of years. And the material that that the Bible starts with, who knows how far back that goes. We just know that Moses wrote it down. Um, But the material in Genesis in the very beginning, the first chapter, who knows how long that goes back. And it's not necessary. What's necessary is to understand how the story evolves. How does the story move from Genesis through Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the whole way to the book of Revelation, and each one of those books are interlocked together and unified together, doing the same thing with that one subject, God's plan of salvation for all human beings in Jesus Christ. So it's also not a collection of books, because that would imply that, you know, you could just have a favorite book, you know, like, oh, I like this book. Um, and and I would say this, that scholars and chin-scratchers oftentimes don't do us any favors here because they like to isolate one book from other books. But you can't because that book fits relationally in with the other 65 books. And we've already made that point, but it has to be made over and over again. So here's what I mean. If we're going to say that Jesus is the Christ. if we're going to say that Jesus is the Passover lamb, if we're going to say that Jesus is the son of Abraham, if we're going to say that Jesus is the son of David, if we're going to say that Jesus is um, the vine, if we're going to say that Jesus... Whatever we say that Jesus is comes from part one. It's part one that makes sense of all of these things that Jesus is. It makes them all incredibly related to Jesus. Um, It's not meant to be silly. It's meant to give a grand explanation of everything that Jesus is. And who Jesus is, is epic. Epic. Because I got news for you. Jesus is God. That's who he thinks he is. I don't know if you ever thought of it in terms like that. And I've actually met people that have disagreed with me that. They, they don't think that Jesus is God. Well, you're disagreeing with Jesus, not me. Jesus thinks he's God. Jesus knows he's God. And Jesus knows that he's completely connected with everything that has gone on in part one of what we call the big book. The Holy Bible. Okay, so so the last thing that, that I want to point out is that These 39 books all set up, really, who Jesus is, and that's Jesus' own perspective. Um, And that's what makes the Bible God's book. That's what makes it truly a God book. Because, honestly, I can't get my kids to do what I want them to do. I can't get them to work together long enough to accomplish much, let alone to try to put a story together, the people that will never meet each other, people that never knew each other, to get them working on the same book, the same plan, the same, you know, and who knows how it turns out? That's crazy. The one thing that makes, to me, what makes the Bible God's book, truly God's book, is the fact that it has spanned thousands of years with a central message or subject, and that tells us that there is an author who has been guiding this whole thing who is God. It all works together, and that is truly, truly remarkable, and that is something different that you and I need more of, not less of. So anyhow, um, you have to press the story from beginning to get out of the story what you need to. It's like wine or like olive oil. You got to press that thing in order to get the product that you're looking for, which brings us to a good question. So what was the product? So the subject is definitely the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. But there is actually a topic that Jesus himself said so many times that that obviously the apostles who were put to task to record um, everything that Jesus said that we need to know and understand, um, but there was one thing that Jesus came onto the scene and he kept saying, obviously, over and over and over again, that we need to get our minds wrapped around, and that is the kingdom of God. When it came to pressing out the story, Jesus kept coming back to the idea of the kingdom of God like no other point. And and so that is one of the massive themes and most important themes. We're going to take the theme that Jesus works with, and that is the kingdom of God. Now, there are clearly many other themes that we can press out and are all about Jesus. You know, the theme of temple. We talked about that the last time and how, how we can look at how the temple and the message of the temple is really really fulfilled in Jesus Christ he is the temple and then when we're in him we're the temple okay I digress but there's a lot of themes there's a lot of ideas but it's the kingdom of God that seems to be on Jesus lips almost all the time and you can do a Google search on you know how many times Jesus says the kingdom of God um, you, you know it, 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 it's a great tool just do it um, and but I like you know one of the One of the passages I like is when Jesus, in Mark's gospel, right out of the gate, one of the first things Jesus has to say is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near, which is kind of funny, because in his mind, he's the king of the kingdom. And if the king of the kingdom is here, that means the kingdom of God is near. So the kingdom of God... I don't think you can get more epic than just that. The kingdom of God. We're not talking about the kingdom of Israel. We're not talking about some other smaller kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom of God. And that is an epic, epic idea. So God's people in God's place under God's rule with God's blessing is what the kingdom of God is all about. The promise that God makes from beginning to end is that he's got this. He is moving everything in the way that he wants to. He is gathering people into the kingdom of God. He's got a plan of salvation. We have a problem. Our problem is sin. And God has a solution. Salvation in Jesus Christ. And God has a game plan. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God promises all things will be made right. We can hang our hat on that. We can actually get up every morning and be relieved that we are in the epic of all epics. We're in the kingdom of God epic. That yes, we're a part of the kingdom of God now and in its finalized fulfillment stage. And so that is the whole point. We need saved. We need God's plan of salvation. But more importantly, we need the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but this world and its little kingdoms, including the United States, wear me down at times. But what I need is something big. And what something big is, is the biblical epic. One world, One dream, creation, groans with longing for the day that God makes things right, all things right, when the kingdom of God is final and we're all in it together, to borrow a phrase of the day. Immerse yourself in God's epic. Immerse yourself in biblical epic.